Father in heaven, we are here today because of you. We are here, Father, because you walked out of the tomb. You led the way for us to do the same. For that, we are so thankful, so grateful. Lord, there are all kinds of other religions that will gather together, not just today, but throughout the course of the week, and they will do their best to celebrate portions of their religion. But Lord, you set us apart. You set us apart with the resurrection. Nobody else can claim that, and as a result of that, no one else has the path to salvation. So thank you, Lord, for showing it to not just your church, but all mankind. And we pray that people will see it today. We pray that people will discover the truth, that they'll experience it, and that they will choose to live it. Lord, again, we are, are very, very thankful for what you did for us on Easter Sunday. Help us live it and show others. In Jesus' name, amen. This past week, I invited Brett Bronson over to my house to trim my horses and get them ready for the spring and the summer. Always an exciting time of year for any horse guy when you get to break the horses out of the corral and get them set to go. It's equally exciting when Brett comes over because Brett's just one of those guys you want to be around. I have found myself for the past eight, nine years since we've had horses and Brett's been shoeing them, always anticipating the opportunity to spend a, a couple hours with him and get to talk with him, but even better than that, just get to listen to Brett. I've learned a lot from him through the years about our horses and about other aspects of life, and I've also had the chance just to sit back and enjoy some of his stories. But more often than not, I'll, I'll set him up, I'll ask him a question, and then I kind of kick back and wait to hear what the answer is. This week was no different. I was holding the lead rope of my little paint mare, and Brett was shooing away, and I said, Brett, tell me something. He said, what's that? I said, tell me how rodeo got started. Now, a lot of you know that Brett has deep roots in rodeo, so he kind of got this strange little smile on his face when I asked that question. He was holding the nippers that he was using on her hooves, and he threw them down in his bucket and grabbed hold of the mane on this little horse and kind of cocked his head to one side and started telling me. This is what it sounded like. It was pretty good. He said, well, Phil, I believe that rodeo got started down in your part of the country. It started in Kansas. I said, is that right? He said, yeah, and it, it's really quite a story of how it got going. If I remember right, this is it. These are the details. He said, there was a man named Pecos Bill that had ridden every bronc anybody had ever brought before him. Brett said, as I recall, he was never thrown off of one. So he decided he wanted a new challenge, made his way to Kansas to find it. He wanted to ride something nobody else had ever ridden, and he wanted to make a name for himself doing it. He wanted to ride a tornado. So he was out in western Kansas waiting for one, and Pecos Bill didn't want just the average tornado. He didn't want one that anybody else could ride. He wanted the meanest, angriest tornado anybody had ever seen. He watched it coming across the plains of Colorado, making its way into Kansas. It was black and green and, and just ugly. Bill knew that that's the one he wanted, and as soon as it got close to him, Brett says, he grabbed hold of that tornado, threw it to the ground, and climbed on its back. When the tornado stood back up, Bill held on for all he was worth, and that tornado went to whirling and whipping and sidewinding its way all the way down to Texas, leveling the forest on its way, and Bill just held on the whole time. In fact, it got so bad at one point that it destroyed every tree in a, a visible area, and they had to rename that part of western Texas the Staked Plains, Brett says. 
Well, Bill was still holding on, and the tornado was doing nothing but gaining power. So he turned that thing towards Arizona and spurred it for all he was worth. Tornado started gathering up all the water it could find, twisting the rivers into knots and pulling the water into the sky and causing it to rain all over the land. But Bill would not let go. In fact, at one point, Brett said that Bill was holding on so tight and that tornado was ripping up the land so hard that when they went across the Grand Canyon, it drained all the water out of there. Finally, as they headed towards California, the tornado was about played out and so was Bill. So Bill decided to just let go. He didn't really get thrown off. He just let go. When he let go, Brett says he hit the ground so hard that that little piece of geography sunk below sea level. And today we refer to it as, oh my gosh, I just lost it, Death Valley. Thank you very much. We refer to it as Death Valley. Isn't that a good story? So then Brett looks at me and he says, that's how rodeo got started, Phil. But today most people just ride bulls and broncs. And he picked up his, his nippers and went back to work on the horse. That was Brett's story. Now, you might wonder why in the world I continue to ask him questions like that, because the very first time Brett trimmed my horses, he told me a story about being chased by a grizzly bear, and he told it pretty well. And then he got this stupid look on his face, and he said, I'm just kidding. After he had sucked me completely into it, he said, oh, I'm just kidding. Brett's a good storyteller. He really is. Now, I do have to be honest with you and tell you that Brett came and trimmed my horses this week, but he did not tell me the story of Pecos Bill. So I'll, I'll let him off the hook there. But I do like stories like that. Love to listen to Brett tell stories. I love to listen to anybody tell stories, even the tall tales that we have all come to appreciate as we have grown up. Stories of people like Pecos Bill and the way rodeo got started. I like all of those. There's something about those types of stories that stir your imagination. They could even stir things down deep inside of us. Tall tales are the the tales and the stories of our childhood. Aren't they great to hear again every once in a while just to remind yourself of simpler times? They really are. Tall tales have an interesting definition. I don't know if you've ever looked it up. This is it. It's pretty simple. Tall tales are the stories that contain unbelievable elements, yet they are told as if they are truth and factual. That's a tall tale. Now, sometimes they are attached to legend and myth. Sometimes tall tales get attached to people's lives, though, as well. Tina and I had a young man named Jake Spencer in our youth group in Colorado that could tell a really good story. His mother, Davelin, came to us very early on in our ministry and said, now Jake's going to tell you all kinds of stories from his life and you're going to be tempted to think that he's lying. He's not. Jake was raised by a rodeo clown father and they traveled all over the country. By the time he was 12 or 13 years old, he did things that most people couldn't do in two lifetimes, and he loved to tell everybody about it. When he would tell those stories at school, the teachers would call home and tell Mike and Davelin, Jake's lying again, and we can't get him to stop, or he ended up in a fight because somebody called him a liar, and he swears that the story's true, but there's no way it is. So Mike and Davelin would go in and listen to the story from the teachers or the principal, and they would have to set the record straight and say, he told you the gospel truth. That did happen. He's not lying. But he was accused of telling tall tales on a regular basis, even from his own life. Now, he's not the only one that's experienced that. There's a person in Scripture that was accused of the exact same thing, telling tall tales, but they came from his life. 
They were the stories of his conversion and how he met Jesus. People thought he had lost his mind when he would tell the story, but that couldn't have been further from the truth. He had found grace. I want to show it to you. It's found in the book of Acts. The man telling the story is none other than the Apostle Paul, and the story that he's telling is the story of the resurrection. It's his story, how he met Jesus. It does have some unbelievable elements in it, but it is full of truth and fact. And the way Paul tells it, it is full of zeal. We're in Acts chapter 26, starting in verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Now let me stop there for just a second. Agrippa is the king. He is the last of the Herods. Paul has appealed to the authorities of Rome so that he can present the message of Jesus Christ not only to them but to all of Rome. He made that appeal from prison. He had to go through the right channels. Before he can go see Caesar, it is necessary for him to face Herod, to face Agrippa. So he is standing now in front of the king. The king is there. His sister Bernice is with him. And the governor of all of the Jewish land, a man named Festus, is there. The king says to Paul, you have permission to speak. You can speak freely. There's some significance behind that first statement. I wanted to make sure you caught it. Now listen to what happens. Then Paul stretched out his hand and he made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to anoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, in delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. 
but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. That's a pretty good message. Might sound like a tall tale. It is full of unbelievable elements, yet it is full of truth and fact. Paul is telling his story, how he came to know Christ, and he has quite an audience to do it with. I want us to take that message and look at it pretty closely this morning, starting with what I would refer to as the hinge pin of everything that happens in chapter 26. If you have your Bibles in front of you, you could see it in verse 3. It's right at the end. It's the last sentence of verse 3. Paul says, before he gets into the story, therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. It's as if Paul is saying, I've got a story to tell you and I want you to hear the whole thing. Don't leave early. You stay with me from beginning to end. I want you to hear all of it. If you leave early, you are going to rob yourself of the best parts of the story. So listen to me patiently, he says. That is incredibly important and I want you to hold on to that. That linchpin ties everything together that we are about to explore. From there, Paul presented two things, and really this sermon can be broken down into two parts. He presented two things to Agrippa and everybody else. The first is a question. Listen to it in verse 8. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? He's speaking to the Jews. With the exception of the Sadducees, the resurrection had been the hope of the Jews just like it is the hope of Christianity because the resurrection leads way to a relationship with God. So Paul's listening to this saying, why why are you struggling with this? You see, they didn't have a problem with the existence of Jesus Christ. They didn't have a problem with the miracles. They had no problem with the teachings of Jesus or the fact that he had walked on the earth for 33 years. They were still in the first generation of, of people with Christ. They weren't even removed from him. So this is the generation of Jesus. They weren't questioning the historical accuracy of who he was. What they were questioning was the resurrection. Did he really come from the grave? Well, the answer to Paul's own question, why is this so hard for you, is actually found in the Bible. The answer is the Jews were caught up in a conspiracy. That's why it was so hard for them. Let me show it to you in Matthew chapter 28. Keep your finger there in Acts 26. But go with me to Matthew 28, starting in verse 11. Matthew 28, verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. This is post-resurrection, Easter Sunday morning. The people had come and found the empty tomb. The women had been there. They stood in front of it. They looked inside themselves. They knew that Jesus was not there. As they were on their way to tell other people that Jesus was no longer in the tomb, the guards were also leaving. Now, the guards are very significant in the crucifixion story. Here's why. 
when Pilate decreed that Jesus would be crucified, they hung him on the cross. You know the whole story of Good Friday. When they took him off of the cross, Joseph of Arimathea came and said, let me have the body. And Pilate granted him the body of Christ. Joseph and Nicodemus buried him, but Pilate was not done. He also showed up at the funeral, and this is what he said. I want to make sure that nobody comes and steals this body and claims resurrection. So he sealed it with his signet, and then he placed guards in front of the tomb, believing that those guards could keep Jesus in the grave. They couldn't. When the Lord shook the ground and the stone rolled away, the guards found themselves scared spitless. Now that's my translation of the original languages. They were scared spitless because they were in charge of making sure nothing happened to that body and now there was no body. So they were on their way to report to the authorities what happened, which means they had to go to Pilate. But because they were so terrified, they stopped off with the chief priest. They went to the church. They were scared. They went to the church. This is what happened. When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave them a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. Now listen to this next part. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. That was the conspiracy that Agrippa was caught in. That is the conspiracy that Festus was caught in. That was the conspiracy that Bernice was caught in. And it all was started by the chief priest when they said to these guards, we got your back. Here's some money. You keep your mouth shut. They paid them off to not tell the truth. And they said, if word gets back to Pilate, you don't even have to worry about it. We will keep you out of trouble. That's all these guards needed to hear. They found their own form of salvation, if you will. So the conspiracy started. When Paul looked at Agrippa and he said, why is it so hard for people to believe in the resurrection? That's the answer. Why is it so hard for the Jews? Because they are still caught up in a conspiracy to this day and they can't seem to break out of it. So Paul then moved from the realm of a question into a declaration to them. This one is found in verse 22. To this day I have had the help that comes from God so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So Paul appealed to their past, to their heritage, to Moses and the prophets. You heard Moses talk about this. You heard the prophets talk about this. I am appealing to your heritage that you might listen I love the fact that he says, I'm appealing that not only for the king, but for every peasant that surrounds this court, both small and great. Pay attention to your heritage. How were you raised? You were raised with the hope of relationship with God. How did that disappear? And then he says, you can have it through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At that point, something really interesting happened. And it is all tied back to that linchpin that I showed you in verse 3. Let's look at it again. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now join me in verse 24 to see what happens. As he was saying these things about the resurrection in his defense, Festus, the governor, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, 
but I am speaking true and rational words. Festus interrupted him. He did not listen beginning to end. He didn't let Paul finish the message. Instead, he got up and said, hold it, you are crazy. You have lost your mind. And did you catch how he said it? Your great education has caused this. Now, that is really interesting. During those days, they would have believed that people in the realm of higher education could have believed, could have rationalized or theorized that the resurrection could really happen. Today, we have reversed that in the realm of higher education. We have people in colleges and universities all across our land that are saying no rational thinking, educated person could believe in the resurrection or believe in Jesus Christ. And universities have been working very hard to destroy people's faith for a number of years. It's interesting how we went from one extreme to the other throughout the course of 2,000 years. Today, the highly educated would say there's no possibility of the resurrection, but the problem they have is they still have an intricate baseline question that must be answered. Every person deals with this. That question, very simply, is what happens to us when we die? What happens to us when we die? You explain away the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You explain away the hope of an afterlife. You remove the resurrection of Jesus Christ and you destroy the truth of heaven. There is a great apologist in our day named Ravi Zacharias who travels to colleges and universities and presents the gospel of Jesus Christ in the language that the educated can understand. He's highly educated himself and he does a great job of bringing the truth of Jesus onto those campuses every time he speaks. It is to full auditoriums because even the highly educated have to wrestle with what happens to us when we die. And they have to wrestle with the question of who is Jesus Christ. I want to show you just a clip of Ravi Zacharias doing this at one university to a packed auditorium. Listen to how he answers their questions. A worldview is built not on one line of argument, a worldview is built on a connected series of arguments. And if a worldview were just built on one line of argument, I think this is the mistake naturalism often makes. It'll take sort of one argument that it has in its favor and forget all the myriad other questions that emerge. When I look at the person and the work of Jesus Christ, this is the most important question I had to ask. Now granted, I asked it in reverse fashion, because I was on a bed of suicide, a Bible was brought to me, and I prayed a prayer of desperation. I grant you that. I just had no hope. But I was read the verse, Jesus said, because I live, you also shall live. I just said, this is talking about a life that I don't have. And maybe this is the life I need. And so I prayed that prayer. But then I made a prayer commitment right on that bed. I was 17, and I said, Jesus, if you are who you claim to be, I will leave no stone unturned in my pursuit of truth. Because my goal was truth. Pragmatically, it made sense for me to hang on to a life jacket that was thrown my way. But then I began my years and years and years of study. When you look at the life of Christ from the prophetic schema of hundreds of years before, where he was going to be born, what he was going to do, what his name was going to be called, how the manner of birth was, the manner of life he was going to lead, how he was going to die, and then the resurrection from the dead. 
the uniqueness about the New Testament and Old Testament scriptures, it's not a single author. It's multiple authors. As you know, 66 books, 40 different authors have edited it. And it is interesting that Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who wrote one-third of it, came in a reverse fashion to the rest of them. The disciples came birth, life, death, resurrection. And that's how they found new Jesus. Not so with Saul, who came to be, who became Paul. He said, when he was encountered the risen Christ, he said that I may know him, the power of the resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death. He started with the resurrection, but he said he needed to understand the cross. Because he came in reverse chronological order, but he encountered the risen Christ. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus and Thomas especially, these two dramatic conversions are powerful witnesses of what happened. Saul who was killing them, he was standing, standing there watching Stephen being martyred and kept the clothes of those who were stoning him. Thomas who said, I'm not going to believe until I see the resurrected Christ myself. And he went to India where there are 330 million deities. And he went and preached the gospel of Jesus and paid with his own life. That kind of dramatic transformation took place not because of just one event, but a connected series of events. So, here's the bottom line. A worldview is built around four questions. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And there are three tests for truth. Logical consistency, empirical adequacy, and experiential relevance. Logical consistency, empirical adequacy, and experiential relevance. Three tests for four questions. And when you take the, the prophecy of Christ hundreds of years before, from his virgin birth, you take the purity of his life unmatched, totally unmatched till this very day. Then the death that he promised for the forgiveness of sins, and then the resurrection. As an Easterner, I asked myself this question. When Jesus was asked how he was going to demonstrate it, if he were a fake, he would have said, I'm going to spiritually rise again. And they would never be able to falsify it. But he said, I'm bodily going to rise again. That is an empirically falsifiable dictum. All they would have had to show him was the body and say, where is he? You said he was going to rise again. So it's in the whole schema of the prophetic corpus, the hundreds of years, the multiple authors, pointing towards the same, same person from his virgin birth to the purity of his life to the death on the cross for forgiveness when he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. And then the resurrection again. I am positive that there were some people in that audience that would have thought Ravi Zacharias was telling a tall tale. The problem they have is this. He was telling his own story of conversion. He was speaking out of his own worldview that he might stretch theirs. The man that was standing at the other microphone thought he had backed him into a corner, but he didn't because Zacharias had the ability to share his own personal story of who Jesus Christ is and how he found him, and he tied it all to the resurrection, to Easter Sunday. He said, this is what it is all about, and if you do not understand that, your worldview will crumble. And that's what... The Apostle Paul was doing with Festus and everybody else that was present. And when Festus said, you are out of your mind, Paul turned his attention to the king. This is found in verse 26. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. 
In that very moment, this is what Paul did. He put a stone in front of King Agrippa that the king had to deal with. Catch that. He put a stone in front of King Agrippa that the king had to deal with. We all have to. We all face that same stone. We all will stumble over it at some point. The Bible makes that plain. I'm going to take you to the book of 1 Peter to show you what I'm talking about. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter writes, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now that's how Peter describes Jesus. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter says that when we stumble across the stone that is Jesus Christ, we have stumbled across the cornerstone of everyone's worldview, or at least it should be everyone's worldview. If he is the cornerstone, our entire life is built upon the belief that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. Go ahead and say amen if you believe that. Interestingly enough, though, there's some deeper teaching in there. If we stumble across the stone and we do not arrive at that realization, there are some drastic consequences. Jesus himself would lay that out for us in the Gospel of Matthew. This is found in Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Now listen to this, verse 44. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now this is what Jesus was teaching. If we come to the place of being confronted with the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, and we fall on it, we will be broken to pieces, but he will put us back together. If we do not, then the time will come when that stone will fall on us, and we will be crushed. It's as simple as that. So Paul presented King Agrippa with the question that everybody has to be presented with, what are you going to do with Jesus? Stumble over him, You fall and and be broken, and he'll put you back together. If you don't, the time will come when he will fall on you, and you will be crushed. There's a worldview boiled down as simple as it can possibly be, and it is all connected. It is all connected to the resurrection. We either believe it or we don't. If we believe it, then we have stumbled across the cornerstone. If we do not, we will be crushed by the cornerstone. That simple. Now I want you to see what happens in this story. We're going to pick up in verse 28. 
And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with him, and they, when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or an imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. I love what Paul just said. Short time or long, however long it takes, Agrippa, you and I can sit here and we can talk about Jesus until you get to the place that you can be as I am, which is Christian. The term Christian means belonging to the party of Christ. That's exactly what Paul wanted for him, that you might belong to the party of Christ and I will stay as long as I need to so that you can understand the empty tomb. And when you understand the empty tomb, you will understand not only Jesus, but you will understand God. Short time or long, I'll stay. But did you see what happened? Agrippa left. He got up and left. He withdrew. Paul put the the whole person of Jesus Christ in front of him. The cornerstone was right in front of him. And he withdrew. He pulled away. Unable to break out of the conspiracy, unable to reconcile the the resurrection for himself, he withdrew. I wish I could tell you that the Bible tells us that Agrippa and Bernice and Festus all became believers. It doesn't. Neither does extra-biblical history. At no point do we learn that that is the case. At no point. In fact, most theologians would tell you that Agrippa got right to the point of being almost persuaded. But then he left. He didn't stay all the way through. He left. And there's a lot of people that have done the same thing. You have gotten to the cross of Jesus Christ, but not made your way through the empty tomb. And you've never been able to see Jesus for who he is, the resurrected Christ. Or you know other people that are the same way. You walked out too early, almost persuaded. You didn't go the distance. Remember the linchpin when Paul said to them before he ever started preaching, I want you to remain all the way through. Be patient that you hear the whole message, which is the message of the resurrection, and you be fully persuaded. Because if you're not, the time comes when the stone will fall on you. And that's tragic. It is truly tragic. Now that's the tragedy side of the story. There is also a great celebration side of the story. That said, Paul said, I want you to be like I am. I want you to be Christian, belonging to the party of Christ. And thousands of people had made that decision by this point in the book of Acts. Tens of thousands of people, they belonged to the party of Christ. And they had a cool way of letting people know it. And we still do as well. And it's all tied to the resurrection. You know how this works today. If you're walking down the sidewalk and somebody's walking towards you like Ray and I are about to, we might say something like this as we're going by. Hey, how you doing? Hey, hey, Phil, how you doing? Just like that. We have a conversation that means absolutely nothing. We ask one another, how you doing? And we really don't care. So we say things like that. You know what I'm talking about. Well, in the first century, they had a whole nother way of greeting one another. And this is good stuff. They would walk towards each other just like this and say something along these lines. He is risen. He is risen indeed. That's their whole interchange. And you know what they just communicated? I belong to the party of Jesus Christ and he is risen. And the other person, by responding the way they did, said, I am right there with you. We are in the same party. He is risen. He is risen indeed. 
That's the celebration side of the tale that the Apostle Paul told. And it is all connected to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because without that, we have no hope. With it, everything changes. We have the hope not only of heaven, but of a relationship with the creator of the universe. Ray, he is risen. He's risen indeed. He is risen indeed.